to this industry talk, the un, brackets, defined business of interactive. My name is Anna Higgs. I'm creative director at a global culture channel called Nowness. Uh, we aim to celebrate the very best in short film storytelling on the web. We make documentaries and narrative films about identity and culture and art and all sorts of lovely things. Please check us out if you haven't heard of us before. Um, and I also, before that, I was Film 4's commissioner in charge of innovation and digital and trying to think about storytelling holistically. So that experience is presumably why I've been asked to be the moderator for an extraordinary panel of people. I am very happy to introduce you to Amelia Winger-Bearskin, to Gary Huswit and Margot Misica. Three phenomenal names, let alone phenomenal people. And we'll start with a really quick intro to who they are and what they do, and then we're going to drill down into some examples to try and discuss this, this idea. This, uh, are the ways of defining um, the business of interactive, that kind of the balance between the creative and, and the commercial. We'll also try and make this as, no pun intended, but useful, interactive a session as possible, so we want to open it out to you guys in the audience too. And to make sure that we're kind of pitching it right, can I do a, a brief, and hopefully I cover off enough areas, how many people here would consider themselves makers or creators in the audience? Can you put your hands up? Okay, good number. Then sort of distributors, financiers, one, okay. Uh, and then I guess film fans or just curious about this area. Cool. Is there anybody I've missed? Programmers. Any other programmers? Couple of programmers. Cool. Anyone feel non-represented by that list of very broad and slightly ad hoc categories? No. Cool. Um, if there's anything we're talking about that doesn't make sense or that you need more detail on, we use an acronym or a buzzword. Uh, feel free to stick your hand up and say, I'm sorry, what on earth are you talking about? Because I hate it when that happens in sessions. We'll try and be as as accessible as possible. So we'll start with Amelia, if you'd like to tell the audience who you are and what you do. Excellent, thank you so much. lab on Wall Street and we have an artist in residency program where each month we pick um, artists that work at the intersection of technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence to create projects like generating scores for pianists, um, creating an entire film that's been generated by a neural network, um, the script, the music in, in its entirety. And we, we produce these projects and then release them to the public. Um, from this work I've moved into to using artificial intelligence and my concepts of that in order to design um, a large-scale citywide project in the city of New Rochelle, which is 20 minutes from downtown Manhattan. And it's called Shifting Imaginative Media. It's an umbrella uh, nonprofit that works with creating the ecosystem so that in five years we'll be able to have a sustainable model for, for giving funding to artists, to programmers, to, um, to interactive distributors 
It's a maker space, a artist live workspace, an artist residency, two galleries, um, apartments, an incubator, and motion capture VR facilities. And I should say, when we say sustainable in this panel context, we mean from a kind of financial, as an individual, you can eat and pay your rent. As a business, you can pay your staff, rather than an ecological one. Um, no, that's not bad either. No, that's not bad either. Being both sus in sustainable in all contexts is phenomenal. But just Which so for, for planning a city is important. It's very important, yes. Gary. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, I'm Gary Hustwood. I'm a um, documentary filmmaker based in New York City. For about 15 years now, I've been producing and uh, directing and distributing documentaries. Um, I have done several about uh, the world of design, uh, Helvetica, um, Objectified, and Urbanized. I also do some photography projects and, and book projects as well. Uh, earlier this year, I launched a company called Scenic, which is a VR, or nonfiction VR content studio with about a dozen uh, other documentary filmmakers who are interested in trying to ex experimenting with, with VR as a, as a storytelling tool. Um, so that's the past six months. Our, our, our first projects have just come out with uh, through the new Google uh, Daydream uh, platform. And, um, and yeah, so I, I've been in independent media for, before I was in film, I was in um, independent music and book publishing. So pretty much since I was kicked out of college um, the second time, uh, <laughs> I've been doing independent <laughs> projects uh, for almost 30 years now of um, kind of DIY, self-funded, self-distributed. Um, we distribute all our, our, all our films. Of the 13 films I've produced, um, I've never gotten any kind of co-production funding or any, any broadcast funding um, until after we make the film and premiere it, then we'll figure out how to, um, you know, who, who our television partner's gonna be or how we're gonna distribute it or uh, license it. So I've kind of brought that model, I think, forward into uh, what we're doing with the, the VR company. We can talk more about that. Great. And Margot? And this one's working. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Margot Musica. I'm a French uh, producer based in Paris, working for a company called Upion. Um, we are, the company has been created in 1998. It's originally a web design studio. So we used to make a lot of, um, we are still making a lot of um, media websites, uh, but also brand uh, uh, contacts us to make mainly content websites. So we do uh, the, for example, on a daily basis, the website of L'Equipe, which is one of the biggest uh, sports newspaper in France. And uh, this is half of what we do, and the other half is um, producing mainly uh, documentary projects and uh, aimed at the internet. So whether it's interactive or linear, we've done a lot of interactive projects. Um, we did a uh, few of them that has be, that have been uh, here pitched or, or showcased, uh, like Alma, A Tale of Violence, Prison Valley, uh, Do Not Track, Casas de Rod. Uh, lately, we have the Great Animal Orchestra that is uh, presented here this year. Uh, we released um, How to Make Cambridge Film as well. And uh, I'm originally coming more from a... Uh, I did a bit of finance, so the underpaying business is, is of interest for me. Um, and uh, working a lot on those uh, projects at Tupion, specifically on the production uh, part of the, of the company. And so I think that's great. Thank you, everybody. I, this is um, 
the 10th anniversary of Dot Club, and I think it's really interesting to be questioning where we are in, in that the kind of life cycle of, of this interactive and this, this digital landscape. Are we in a mature place, are we not? I'd love if each of you could perhaps run us through, and I know you, you all have a couple of slides, uh, a project or a couple of projects that really give the audience a picture of where you feel we are now, so that we can kind of draw that, that put that pin in the map, have a bit of a look backwards, but also then look forwards to where you think those learnings are gonna take you. Uh, Margot, do you want to start at your end? Yeah, yeah so I, I thought it could be interesting to, to talk very briefly about uh, two or three projects that we'll uh, have been uh, working on lately because they have been uh, commissioned or financed quite differently. And, uh, and I'm, I'm associating also uh, the business part of interactive with the distribution, which is completely um, very important, maybe more important than, than in uh, pre previous uh, industries. So uh, the first one is Generation What? We did um, a few years ago, we did in France a pro project that was called Generation Quoi, which was um, made with France Télévision and which was aimed at uh, reconnecting public media with youth. So the idea was instead of trying to talk about youth, but to do something where they could express themselves. So it was a online questionnaire uh, built with two sociologists that would allow basically for people to answer a question, which is, am I normal? Like between 18 to 34 years old, you really need to know where you're situated in the, in the norm, whatever that means. Um, and, uh, and the project was very successful in France. We had like 250,000 people answering the questions. It's about 100, 150 questions, so it's a lot of data. And so we decided to bring it to Europe. And so we built it, uh, it was released in April uh, throughout uh, 13 countries in Europe with 19 broadcasters. And uh, we're, I think in a few days, we should reach the million uh, people who answered the questions in 10 languages or something like that. So that's a, a project that we did uh, with public broadcasters, the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, who really gathered everything. And uh, this is representative of what we're trying to do right now, which is how do you build international co-productions on interactive uh, projects as it is um, aimed at an audience that is niche audience. So it's communities, but that are worldwide, like people interested in some stuff, some of the stuff that we're doing are really from all over the world. So we're interested in building the content so that it's relevant for local audiences. Um, so everywhere you would go in the countries that were part of the project, you would have a specific website that was made with content produced locally so that you had a mirror of yourself, you could, you could compare yourselves with people in your country and then with people of Europe. Um, and two other projects that have been funded and distributed quite differently. So the idea of Generation What is a business model is that it's becoming a format basically. Um, so it's inspired from some of the stuff that have been made for TV, uh, but it's also something that we can uh, de decline in, in different ways. And we have been asked by uh, CFDT, which is a very big national union in France, to create a campaign on a little bit on the same model about work, the relationship people, French <coughs> people had with their, with their work. So we released it um, a few weeks ago. I think we have about 125,000 people who answered already. We partnered with uh, Vimeo, which is the local LinkedIn. Um, and it, we were quite amazed to see how 
how much people wanted to talk about their job, how, what, what complicated were the relationships between people with their jobs. And the last project uh, I wanted to, to talk about was the Great Animal Orchestra, because it's um, also in the, in the doc hut, so you can, you can watch it. Everything that I'm talking about is available online. Usually it's translated in English, so you can access it and watch it if you want to know more about it. So the Great Animal Orchestra is quite different in the way that it has been commissioned by uh, Fondation Cartier. So it's a contemporary art uh, foundation. They were doing a, an exhibition around the work of an artist who called, who's called Bernie Krause, who made a presentation uh, last Sunday at, uh, at Lockhab, um, who has been recording uh, natural sounds for the past 40 years. And they did a beautiful exhibition uh, in Fondation Cartier, and they wanted something online that would represent the project, that would represent his art, but that was not a replication or a declination of what was done um, for the exhibition. And so we did a beautiful piece, small piece, um, where you can hear some of the sounds and him telling a few stories that you should go and watch. But it's to say that the, the, the production that we're working on are not only uh, traditionally commissioned or our own auto-production, investment and proposal distribution, uh, but also some civil society members interested in how do you engage uh, audience uh, either internationally or locally on specific projects. And um, the very last thing, and then um, I stop talking, um, is uh, that we're getting more and more interest in video games. So either talking about it in documentary series, like just released a linear series for France Television for the, the web. So asking ourselves questions like, how do you write, how, you, how do you produce, how do you finance linear for internet, what's different from uh, which is the new word that I'm using since <laughs> for the past two days. Um, so traditional medias and uh, and how and, and getting involved also in, in developing um, narrative independent video games. So what's the difference between interactive and and, and video games? Uh, so we're getting involved in a project that is really close to mobile app games. Great, thank you, Margaret. So there's a lot in there, and we're don't worry, we're going we're gonna to pick up and drill down into a lot of this, but just to kind of pull the, sh the strands, there's some really interesting stuff about digital being both bordered and borderless, so you're doing something that's in France, but then you try and spread it out. The, the nature of digital is it should be global, but we know there's issues with that. China doesn't have the same internet that we have, for example. There's stuff about formats and all bespoke creation in there, and the thing that definitely that piece about are we which business models are we talking about when we're talking about the business of interactive are we talking about tv games non-profit commercial there's a whole wealth of, of choices we have plus i think the really lovely thing that may echo is the idea of communities about actually rather than that broad broadcast we want all of the eyeballs in the country looking at us by plugging into a niche you potentially have more power of engagement and, and yeah, worldwide niche, like yeah. people in different places of the world interested in the same topic should be reached by a specific project if it's built in that yeah. way. Because niche doesn't mean small necessarily, that's the thing that I think. When means. you put them all together, it can quite become yeah. quite big, yeah. Great. <coughs> Gareth. Is this one working? Yeah, I think. Hi. Hello, this is, this is better. 
these are uh, a few of the projects that I've um, worked on recently. And um, while most of them are interactive projects, uh, I thought it'd be interesting uh, to compare the different ways that we sort of funded them and, and produced them and released them. So um, Mavis was a, a feature documentary about uh, Mavis Staples, who's a staple singer, legendary soul gospel um, uh, musician in, in the States, which uh, we pretty much self-funded it, uh, myself and, and the director, Jessica Edwards. It was interesting because we went to some, um, a few commissioning editors. We did the Sheffield Meat Market, and met a lot of people, and, and everyone's constantly, you know, does this like, oh, you, we love it, you know, keep us in the loop. Um, have more when you've got more footage, we'd love to see it, you know, that kind of thing. And we just weren't, she was, uh, Mavis was turning 75, there's kind of a, a lot of things that were happening um, that, that made us kind of want to fi uh, finish the film quickly, so we just credit carded it and, and, um, and premiered it. And then when it premiered at South By, there was a bidding war, and, you know, within an hour of the premiere, we were, you know, profitable. So um, that's never, that never happens also for any of you documentary filmmakers. Do not count on that ever happening. Because we had a full plan to release the film independently ourselves and screening set up and everything. But um, plan for it that not to happen and then when it does happen, you'll be um, just pleasantly surprised. So, and then now it's been released, you know, we've released it through, I don't know, maybe another dozen different uh, countries, distributor, distributors, Dogwood and, and, and others. Um, and it's now on the Holly, Holly Variety or Hollywood Reporters watch list for Oscar doc nomination. I read yesterday. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, so, uh, and that's typically how we've done all our, 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 do our documentaries. It's either self-funded or we've done, you know, occasionally um, Kickstarter or even before Kickstarter was a thing, we were, I guess, doing crowdfunding, you know, letting the people who wanted to see the film um, be a part of it and help make it. Like I started doing a lot, uh, originally producing a lot of music documentaries, so the music docs, there's a fan base there. There's an audience that they're dying to see this thing. They, they want to see it finished as badly as you do. So they're willing to get involved and buy a poster or, or whatever. Um, and now, you know, just through Kickstarter, obviously, it's just kind of like, you know, formalized that. Um, the Olympic City is a photography project. It's a documentary photo project uh, that I've been doing for eight years with um, John Pack, who's another photographer, where we've been going around the world to former Olympic host cities and documenting what remains and how the games affected the, the uh, and changed those cities and the people who were there. So it's eight, eight years we've been traveling around uh, photographing and occasionally we'll do an exhibit or a book. Um, we did a Kickstarter campaign for that, which paid for uh, book publishing and more, um, more uh, travel. Um, Scenic is the long fiction VR company that I launched uh, earlier this year, which was really um, you know self-funded the startup capital for it pretty quickly. We, we partnered up with um, some, some great collaborators who brought in more money to you know, produce our first batch of, um, of pieces. Uh, we'll come kind of, I want to come back to that since it's, it's, it's more of the, the kind of the interactive uh, model and kind of where I see like the, the business model for VR or independent producers of VR going forward. Um, and then Rams is a documentary that I'm, I'm making about uh, Dieter Rams. He's the legendary uh, German designer who was the Braun that was another case where I self-funded it for the first maybe 12 months of shooting and did um, like a $300,000 Kickstarter for it um, a couple months ago. 
So that's kind of a range of, 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 of what, I, what I do. Um, I think all those kind of you know, traditional documentary projects and the way we've put those together and released them have informed what uh, we're doing with Scenic, which is really focusing on original content, um, you know, either from within our group of 12 filmmakers, ideas that we have, or uh, people who come to us for, who are interested in collaborating. But it's producing original content, which we fund, and then you know, figuring out either along during production or once we finish, figuring out what the best uh, way to distribute that, that content is, whether it's licensing it to a platform um, or just giving it away. It's, it's, it's really, uh, we're kind of platform agnostic and, and tech agnostic. We can kind of just play around and experiment with, um, with the technology and, and see where it goes. I started Scenic because I just didn't, I mean, there, there needs to be more experimentation. There needs to be more voices in, in VR, in, you know, nonfiction VR specifically for us. But um, I think that unless there's more great original content coming out, all these devices are, are useless without great content. So it's really, um, for this to be, for VR to be a true mass medium, uh, you need a huge range of content for all different, you know, uh, sources. So it can't just be, um, you know, one thing. It can't just be kind of gamified stuff. Um, so that was our, our, our interest in, in doing it. I just, uh, again, the, it's, it's hard because, you know, sometimes or historically it's been more expensive to produce VR pieces. So uh, that idea of just messing around and failing and experimenting. Um, I, I think everything is moving so quickly with the tech and we need to kind of slow down somewhat, at least on the creative side, and try to think of what this medium is really good for. Um, and forums like Infra are a perfect place to see you know, a lot of great work in that direction. Do you have a, a way of choosing, I'm sorry, can I get my question? Mm -hmm. Do you have a way of, of choosing projects, whether it's a documentary or even you're saying you're always inspired to work on a project, with the idea behind that it's going to reach an audience and thus going to be able to refund itself? In a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we go into any project without the, the idea that it's going to, you know, find an audience and, and somehow recoup what you know, we put into it. I mean, we don't have, you know, in the States, you know, we've never really had government funding, and now we're going to have a lot less government funding of the <laughs> arts. But uh, so I've never depended on that. Again, my background is like <coughs> punk rock, record labels, and DIY media projects. So, um, you know, we've, we've always tried to connect with the audience for the projects, which is basically us, um, as early as possible. Because if you have that direct connection with your audience, you don't need distribution. You don't need funding. You can get all, all those people involved in the project early and just have them be a part of it. Or it, it just makes it a lot easier when you have that direct connection. So for me, like we, we make projects that we like, that we want to that we want to watch. That's the only audience. Like for my films, it's films that I, I want to watch and I just can't believe they don't exist. It's like, why isn't there a film about fonts? Come on, this is incredible. Like, I, I want to watch a film about fonts and no one's making it, so I'm like, okay, gotta make the film about fonts. And if you make projects that you like, there are other people out there who like them too. And really the big challenge is just connecting with those people. And that's what the web can do, so. Great, so th there's quite, there's a mass, I could spend three hours talking to each of you, but th the bits that I pulled out as I did with Margot there is that particularly I love the warning of 
count on that not happening. I think the, the idea of the taking that personal risk and counting it not happening is an important one for us all to note. But again, you, you're picking up on that sense of communities that Margot was talking about, of understanding you are that community to start with, which is really interesting as a creator. Um, involving audiences from the very beginning, you know, your work was pioneering ahead of the likes of Kickstarter that has applied a model to that, that process. Um, the, the sense of the creative being not, a, not, yes, it's content is king, but without great content and without great experimentation and taking risks, all these devices are useless. So the sense that the tech and the creative have to work together, that the models, the commercial and the creative have to knit together is really strong there. And I love your call to kind of, that's that what I've written down is the space to play, the, the notion of slowing down and, and saying, yeah, but what could we really do with this? Just because we can do this, is that the best way of doing this? What's the best way of exploring that? But what echoes for me that feels like it's quite hard and it's quite a lot of work, a Kickstarter pro project on its own is like a full-time job, let alone trying to make your film at the same time, is the bespoke nature. Every single film having its own unique way of progressing and how maybe you've, I, I'd love to drill in a little bit later into perhaps how, what things have you found are the same across doing Mavis or Rams that you can apply or are you having to literally start from scratch? on each film, I think there's, there's something in terms of that models question that we're asking. But it would be good, Amelia, to hear a little bit more about where you, kind of the examples that you feel. Do we have Amelia's slides? Would you mind mirroring it on the um, screen in front of me as well? Um, can it come on the presenter screen too? Would you mind? Thank there you. you. So much. Now I can see it too. <laughs> All right. So excellent. So um, like I said, I want to use artificial intelligence in the way that we look at how we design ecosystems to support this type of experimentation. Um, so. All right. So the, the first work that I did was at the DBRS Innovation Lab, where we got a group of coders, quants, machine learning scientists. Um, you know, different types of data analysts to work with artists side by side to, to help develop the concept of the project and then the final um, examples of the project. If you'd like to check them out at dbrslabs.com, um, you can read more in detail about our research and see some of the, um, some of the output of these projects. Um, so here is one where we did a visualization of a convolutional neural network in VR. So there are definitely, um, you know, content as entertainment, as, as interaction, as documentary, um, but there's also content for the systems that is, is research-based, is science-based, has a lot of um, ways, like for instance, this is a way of teaching an audience about how neural networks work by showing character recognition so that the person draws with their hand and then they move through the, each of the phases of the convolutional neural network to understand what it is to have a neural network. So we can both use these tools to create the work and also use that work to help explain these systems to larger audiences as a way of education, but also influencing um, how we understand our policy and when and why we decide to use these systems in our healthcare systems, in our economic systems. AI is going to be the, the bedrock of a lot of our, our new systems in new cities, and I think the more people and policymakers understand them, we can make sure that they're ethical. Um, so this is, is something that I'm very interested in. Um, 
we host researchers for Montauk Residencies. This is a project called the Simulated Humans of New York, which took census data from New York and created a sort of video game where you would see the, the, the simulants in the city would tweet sort of their, what they thought about what was happening based on different types of inputs and models that we created. That was done by um, Francis Singh and Fei Lu, um, who are now at Newig, which is an interesting incubator for the Hispanic project here in New York. Um, we also have, uh, we worked with Aaron Arntz to do a residency to train a recurrent neural network to generate sheet music for piano. And he's a Grammy award winning pianist. Um, he's in Grizzly Bear, National, Beirut, and a couple of other bands, and really amazing pianist. And he wanted to create um, human playable computer generated sheet music. And then at the end of it had a, a large performance of this work, which was really exciting to hear what the machine sounded like. Um, and then we also work with uh, Gene Kogan, who created an online book aimed at introducing machine learning to a wider audience, and it's called Machine Learning for Artists. So if anyone is interested in this kind of generative practice, I definitely recommend going through. It's entirely open source and available, so you can go and learn about these systems to generate your own work, or, or, or if it's interesting as a topic, per se, for um, your work. Um, so then, you know, once you're, you're looking at designing these kinds of systems, um, I'm also interested in, in how we can develop the, this type of partnership, um, not just in an industry and artist point of view, but also with the city. So shifting imaginative media is dedicated to promoting, developing, and maintaining a vibrant new arts and technology district in the city of New Rochelle. So that New Rochelle is 20 minutes from downtown Manhattan. You take the train, and the actual train station is an apartment. Um, a gallery, live workspace, and you walk a couple more feet, and there's another gallery, another apartment, another live workspace. A couple feet down from that is a black box theater that's motion capture enabled, and then there's a large 15,000 square foot motion capture facility and VR workshop, um, and then there's also um, an incubator. So, and all of this is a nonprofit model, um, and since you mentioned in the United States we don't have like necessarily, there were public grants we applied for um, from the uh, governor of New York, um, but instead, we got our funding primarily from the city of New Rochelle, the mayor of New Rochelle, uh, the, the building commissioner, and then the largest building developers in, in, um, in the United States, anyway, um, who are helping by donating. Um, you know, each of the buildings costs you know, anywhere for, from two to four million dollars to fix a foundation or to do the renovations. And they're investing in this space as, as a part of um, you know, deals that they're working through with, with the commissioner. So, if you want to have a sustainable environment where you can have many creators come through to live and work, what are each of those steps? I, I came up with the idea that they need you know, free apartments, they need live workspace, they need a motion capture facility, they need that, the expertise of people who would be working there in order to provide that. Um, we need to have a data library so that we can open source the information and the artificial intelligence that we gather um, so that, that researchers and artists can be toe-to-toe -to -toe with the industries that are also collecting this information. Um, so that's sort of the area that I'm looking at is, you know, how do we create in the next five years this ecosystem so that um, commerce can have a natural relationship with the artists, with the content that's being created. Um, so this is, again, the incubator, mocap facility, artist residencies, black box theater. And um, if you're interested in contacting me to either be a resident, to work with us, to um, partner. I know we are having lots of different similar initiatives around the world partner with us to have um, residencies that can go back and forth or um, tech incubators in shared ways. Please contact me and let me know um, how we can be of assistance. <laughs>
in your city as well. Brilliant, thank you. That's, I mean, it's an extraordinary range of things and it's an extraordinary kind of development on from something just the AI stuff on Wall Street alone, having that funded by Wall Street and then essentially kind of taking over a city and trying to change its ecosystem and how it, how it thinks about itself and the spaces that that, that creates. I think that the key things that, that came out for me there that chimed really nicely with what Gary and Margot were saying is this stuff about ecos ecosystems and it's about the sustainability of that. Um, open source and ethics was something that came out really, really strongly for you about sharing those results and talking about so where these amazing resources and this amazing infrastructure hasn't been built, people can still benefit. So you've got that, uh, I guess that, um, it, people are able to communicate with you regardless of not being in your space. Um, and it's a, it feels like a very holistic approach to what you're doing. And I, I suppose that's one of the things that we're trying to tap into here with the, the questions that we're asking is, are the holistic approaches that we can take, are the, with three very, very diverse points of view, three very different ways of working from a creator's perspective, a producer's perspective, and a, I don't know, I feel like you're a, a, the god of a sim city of the most extraordinary. We are called shifting imaginative media, so it's Yeah, you're a sim city, um, which I had to delete from my computer when I was a teenager because I spent way too long on it. Um, I basically <laughs> want to be you when I grow up. So, uh, there's, what would you say, I, I'm interested, so this is kind of where we are now and how we've got to now, and there's, there's these are, the three of you are sitting here because they're very successful stories. Um, would you say, I'm interested maybe to tap into, for all of us, where, what are the, what have been the big hurdles that you've had to kind of get across? There was something really interesting you said to me on the way in here about that kind of, the notion of do you wait for permission or not? And then what a, I would love to then take, drill down into some of these things about, and actually going forward, we're going to start doing it like this. And these are the things that you're interested in. And then I think that would be a good point <coughs> to start engaging the audience. So I mean, to respond to what we were speaking about earlier, um, the way in which, I mean, I think the real work in both with the Innovation Lab and with Shifting Imagined Media was I first designed it. You know, I, I went and wrote not a business plan, but more like what, what, what is the story of what this will be in a year? And what will it look like? Who are the people that are involved? Um, and just you know, created this document of this is this thing that if you were to look at it, you'd be like, this exists already. And then you go to someone and say like, this is, this is what I'm imagining. What do you think about this? And you talk to the right people. And in both cases, um, you know, with the first person that I talked to, because I knew that they were the person in the right position to say yes. And um, so I think sometimes we can wait and find the right grant to create the right project, or we can have a couple of ideas floating around and wait for the right connections. But you can also do at least the, the outline, the planning, the story of what it is. And then once you really have that in a, in a really solid mental space, being able to explain it to someone else, it, it, becomes, um, it just becomes really clear for them to help you make that thing possible because it's so clear as to what it is that you're trying to make. Uh, I, can I interrupt? Because I think there is something really interesting that because I'm French, I'm going to be the French girl. Um, I, we have a big uh, discussion at the office lately um, uh, about what's public interest. So in France and in Europe mostly, public interest is supposed to be defended by public service and especially public service media. So the big idea behind is that everybody put money on a common, uh, common wallet 
and then it's redistributed for the public interest and just general interest. And whether it is to do uh, films, uh, documentaries, um, cities, uh, whatever, this is dealt with by the states. And one of the things that I'm amazed with by the United States is that because this doesn't exist, some people have been considered in charge of public interest in developing either for business reasons or for moral and ethic reasons. But I think this is really the core also of the, of the subject because I think um, most of the people involved in documentaries are not here to, to make a lot, load of, ton of money. Uh, it's usually not the first um, reason. And, but there's something contributing to society that is getting more and more important in a way and deleting at the same time because we're a bit obsessed with performance and what's um, actually making money or not. So I, I think it's really interesting that the common point for me is really this notion of what do we think public interest is and who should be funding it and how do we contribute to it on, on different levels, um, whether it's through national funding, state funding, or in individual initiatives. Gary, do you, do you have anything to, to say to that? Um, I mean, for, you know, for, for what I do, it's just about, um, I want to make the next thing. I want to be able to make the next thing without having to, I've, I've never written a grant, I've never applied for a grant. Um, I just want to be able to have the, be, to be self-sustainable an artist and to just be able to make the next project or, or my friend's next project or, or someone in our, in our group's next project and not have to go to um, you know, a corporation or, or, the public or, or, or the government. I mean, I'd much rather go to the audience for the project and, and if they think it's valid, they'll, they'll, they'll tell us. Um, but have enough funding um, ourselves to be able to make it or get close to making it and then people can see what it So it's, it's a, I think it's a slightly um, different model. I think it does harken back to um, independent music. I mean, when, when I released Helvetica, um, I, like I put a website up maybe six months before the, the film came out. And before the film had even been released, I think we'd sold, I think, $75,000 worth of t-shirts and posters. Wow. Um, and I mean, a lot of what I've done in the past 10 years really has kind of keyed on uh, just that that film found its audience and it, and it was successful. I mean, I think the budget for it was maybe $300,000 tops um, and it grossed over $2 million. So that, I mean, it paid for itself and it paid for my next film and then those two films kept paying forward. Um, <coughs> I think something to think about, which actually, I mean, if we want to talk about, um, you know, interactive, um, at least with film in the past, it's, for me, it's been about uh, building a catalog controlling the rights to that catalog. And Helvetica, something I made 10 years ago, is still, you know, still is on home video and still sells it. It's there for me. Um, if you're just living project to project, working for on someone else's thing as a work for hire, um, you're only as good as you can never kind of relax. Um, you don't have your body of work kind of, you know, doing the, the uh, you know, kind of taking yeah. you afloat, always, always being there. Um, so that's always kind of, you know, I've been able to sort of roll that into each project and have, mm -hmm. a, have a kind of a, a body of work that kind of keeps on giving. The interesting thing with interactive, like already that I think we're looking into with the um, like VR, 
in three or four years, in like five years, is anyone going to care about these pieces? Is the technology going to leapfrog so far that they'll even be watchable? Mm. I mean, the, the idea of preservation of, of interactive media is, is something that I think is going to be more and more a topic because, you know, there are things that we did like, <laughs> yeah, like CD-ROMs or whatever, and you can't, you know, you can't even mm. maybe play them. Even so. hard drives. Are you trying yeah. to use a hard drive from a few years ago? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, so yeah, that, that's something something I think about because, uh, again, if you're a creative, you know, producer or creator, you want to have control of what you create, and you want to be able to have that with you. I know so many filmmakers that only do kind of work for hire things, and at the end of you know ten years or fifteen years, they can't stop working. They have to keep working. They can't just rely on the sales of things they've already done. So it's something I think about with all all independent media projects that that idea of, um, of building up your, your body of work and, and that's the thing of, of, of value hopefully in the future. Yeah, but that's interesting because we're now in interactive, we don't have this notion of catalog, people don't buy stuff that have been released already. Uh, it's very difficult. Either you're, you're on, like in movie, you're on distributor, but the, the places where people are used to buy, especially interactive documentaries, don't really exist now. Um, we're going to see what happens. VR is going to be an interesting experiment on that. But for now, the, the one of the reasons why we, we started to, to go towards format is because we didn't manage to have, uh, like you do in documentary uh, production, the idea that you can continue to sell on, because it's the, this business model in a way is based <laughs> on exclusivity and, and geographical um, and territories. And, and interactive for now has been developed a little bit like internet, which means you can com like have it e everywhere, anywhere. It's geo-blocked, not because you've blocked people, but because Google is kind of geolocated, depending on where you are, depending on what has been made in your environment, you won't find the same the same things. So it's it's this is a. a very ongoing discussion in the documentary world versus the interactive world because do you explode everything and you try to find new um, new business models? Do you try to apply the, the, the way it worked in documentary to interactive, which is not mm. completely going that way? I think it's something that you mentioned before, like every project in, in interactive is almost a different funding model and distribution model and, and revenue model. It's like nothing channels have just been kind of exploded. Like VR, even within VR, there's like 10 different, 20 different business models, depending on what the content is. Is it, is it, is it cinematic documentary VR? Is it CG gamified stuff? I mean, you know, you're looking at two completely different strands right there. Yeah. And there's, there's an interesting thing. I think there are the business models to borrow from. Do you want to borrow from the broadcast model and disrupt that? you borrowed from the cinematic model and disrupted that by being potentially your own sales agent and your own distributor and in terms of your cinematic documentaries the, the interesting thing is if you want to instead of borrowing from broadcast borrow from gaming there's a there's a whole different equation to happen there and what what i find really interesting is i think in interactive is suffering in it because it, it feels like it's it's coming across is still slightly <coughs> thought of essentially either as bolt-on bolt or marketing or it's research and development. So there is 
when, when you say what's the revenue model, I can't think, apart from notes on blindness now, which are no mentioned during the doc lab, if you haven't done notes on blindness, I recommend it in the, in the VR suite, is that they're being paid tiny amounts of money, but, but small amounts of money to install it as a live experience accompanying the film. And that's really interesting. They're not, you know, the, the Gear VR where it's being distributed through the to its audience of VR headset owners through those stores, like the equivalent of the App Store. That's not a revenue model for them. But this kind of a couple of thousand euros to be installed in an institute in Switzerland while the film's playing is something. That's it. So that the, there's a, almost a theatre model that's being pulled in there, which is kind of fascinating. And another model that I've, I've been a consultant and producer on a, a couple of large VR projects where I'm helping them to look at um, another revenue model, which is to go into the tech industry and look at the IP um, options that can be with, if you're using you know, new sensors in your experience, or if you're working side by side developing tech that has never been developed before, looking at the venture capital model, you know, connecting with other tech startups, or looking at, at taking a tech startup product and, and you know, having them pay you for product placement, and then you're giving them the data on like, you know, this is how many times it failed, this is how many times it worked, this is the sort of analytics from those experiences, right? So um, so that's another model, which I think is maybe it's more Infrastructure, not creation. In a, in a, it, it's, it's like intellectual property, yeah. right? Or, or like patents, mm -hmm. right? So that's also another possibility <coughs> in this space because we're developing these, um, you know, we're developing these technologies, these experiences, and that is incredibly valuable to a lot of people. And so if you can, if you can work with the right kind of partner to make sure that you're, you know, doing, you, you still have an ethical trust with your viewers and saying that, you know, we're going to be using these biosensors and this this technology when when you're looking at the headset and doing this biofeedback, this is going to help cancer research. Are you okay with this? You know, and have mm -hmm. this kind of back and forth. You're able to get a diff another type of model from yep. it as well. So it's incredibly hybrid in its approach, which is both really exciting because it perhaps encourages a lot of collaboration that you might not normally have. Um, you know, you're a producer in a web studio. That's that's a really interesting thing. But is it what are the what are the challenges to that? Are you, are you having to? Is it are the more upsides to having to be your distributor, your tech guy, thinking about IP, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, than there are challenges to that than to going? I just want to make a great work. I just want to talk to my audience. It, it's for for us one of the downside. It's it's very difficult to get money, basically. So um, when you're not and, and one of the, the weird thing is that everybody thought the web was cheap, basically. So when you say you work on the web, everybody assumes that it's gonna be very, like a few, th a few hundred euros. And, <laughs> and when you present a budget where you have everything that you need in a film crew, plus developers, artistic directors, and that you're, you're creating something you know, don't know when you start how you're gonna make it, this has a cost that is very difficult to explain. Like the time it takes to fail, <laughs> basically, has to be in a budget. It's time, it's like, uh, we have been spending a lot of time explaining people that, I don't know, you say it's gonna be 60 days of, of developers. And you're like, the problem is that I can say, and they want a detail of what you're gonna do in those 60 days. And you say, well, that and that and that. And at some point you're like, but I can have my tech guy calling me and saying, okay, I'm blocked, this is not working, and asking him how long it's gonna take to debug it, he can say whatever he wants, he's never gonna be right. He can say two days, it's gonna be 10, he can say 
two weeks, it's going to be two days. It's, I mean, this is trying new things. It's, it's expensive. It's a creative process in and of itself. Yeah, and mixing like jobs that don't know how to work together. They're not used to, filmmakers are not used to talk to tech guys. They don't have the same, I mean, the word development in production, it doesn't yeah. mean the same. And in, so all this vocabulary, all these habits, all this way of working, like directors, they're used to be like the, the king on board on a film. And when you have to interact with artistic directors explaining to you that no, you're not gonna film like that because this is not working with the interface, take guys saying to the <coughs> editor, I'm sorry, but you need a, uh, a fade out here because it, that's how it's working. It, it takes mm. also like, uh, egos are not so <laughs> happy. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in, in VR specifically in my, in my limited experience with it thus far, I've, I've just never seen a medium where every single aspect of it is in flux from the creative approach to the capture tech to the business model to the audience who's even watch, watching these things. Like every <laughs> single, nothing is defined. Um, it's, it's crazy. Uh, but from what we're doing, like, which is a kind of like cinematic, you know, nonfiction VR, um, I think, you know, next year you're gonna see in the same way that like Netflix has Orange is the New Black, Netflix will have original VR series, whether scripted or, or, or nonfiction. Hulu and Amazon, so for us, that seems like a, um, that's one kind of business model for us, is kind of coming up with creative content. I mean, there is that kind of, you know, VHS and, and beta thing happening with all the different <laughs> platforms and the, har and the hardware manufacturers. But then you have to just copy whatever porn decides to use. That was the lesson on VCR. I don't, know, I don't think so. I think it's like, <laughs> again, everybody wants great stuff for their, for their device, and, and it's the content that sells. Yeah. Leveraging that, uh, you know, like us as the creators of this stuff, should be leveraging that because these um, these multi-billion-dollar industry does not happen without without us without cr us creating this content, mm. whatever form it takes. Um, so I, I think that that is um, that's where our power is as creators. And in the next year, as you know, this um, technology evolves and more people like Amazon and you know, at some point. It, it is in danger of kind of tripping over itself because, you know, all this, like, the technology is kind of coming out, the hardware is coming out. Um, I think we need more content. Uh, you know, can't, it's, it's kind of this, like, push and pull of, like, the, the, the hardware and the, the viewing technology and then where's the content for it and it kind of keeps, has to keep moving forward. Um, so I think it's, I mean, I'm, it's a really exciting time for me. Like, I, I'm super optimistic about it. Um, because I think there's so much creative potential in, in you know, all these interactive uh, media. Um, and that, that figuring out like how you do this and, and still pay the rent. Um, <laughs> again, I think there's so many different channels to do it. There's, you know, mm -hmm. there's kind of more branded things or working with um, you know, um, whatever kind of you know, uh, broadcasters or public funding or just going directly to the, to the audience. Like there's, there's so many ways. I think there are new which is, uh, there's a very interesting thing around VR and uh, tourism or art installation. Like, there are more and more um, uh, bridges between 
these industries that had mm. nothing to do with each other, that, that you didn't know about the existence of each other, uh, which are really interesting, like uh, geolocation yeah. to cities, what can you co content, and touristic information yeah. can you do uh, with interactive. So there are a lot of bridges and, and places like Ikba are really uh, allowing also people from different worlds to, to meet. Yeah, it's that level above that I if we take it up from even where we're talking about in the context of the documentary festival, there's this, like, this global idea of the experience economy, to which a festival like this, a TV documentary, a game, a VR experience, all of that, and, and going to New Rochelle and being an artist there for a month, taps into all of that. So we're going to open it up to the audience for questions because we could keep talking forever. I'll miss my flight home this evening. But I think there's something really interesting about the... the the, the creation and the, the content being key, that we're very much led by that, that creation, that either making spaces like Amelia is being the maker or, or helping then that collaboration. So there's a collaboration question on top of that creation, whether that's internally within teams or with the platforms or with the funders, which are, are really um, plethora. And actually it feels like what everyone's saying here to me is that by even when you actually probably don't know what it is, if you can at least define it somehow, there's a, you can, if you can draw out the clarity that you do have, that's how you get those partners <coughs> to kind of circle or to, to come on board. But let's explore that maybe a little bit more and, tap and check in with whether that's true by the end. But yep, the, in the middle there, if you can wait for Mike to come up to you. Question to Gary. I shot a 360 documentary, which is a like 15 minutes short documentary about an eight-year-old refugee girl living in an occupied hotel in Athens. And I'm asking myself, what is the best strategy to distribute it? Like, should I create an app for every store? Like, should I create an app for the Samsung store, for the Oculus store? Yeah. Like, should I try <laughs> to get answer. in touch with like one of these apps where they already have different documentaries? Like, um, Maybe. yeah, do you have advice <laughs> or which kind of strategies are you thinking I mean, of? Yeah, your well, look at all the people that are released, like The Guardian or, or The New York Times <coughs> or, I mean, The Wall Street Journal. Um, I mean, there are a lot of um, either newspapers or website, you know, newspapers, website or broadcasters. There are a lot of people that are releasing these things now and want more. I mean, I know that, that the New York Times is, um, you know, for the <coughs> NYT VR app, just they need more stuff. Um, there's just not enough great content being created uh, to fill the demand. Um, and they've got a huge uh, installed base on the, on the app. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people. So don't, I, I wouldn't build your own app and then try to get that out there or try to, like, piggyback on, on someone else and try to get a license fee from, you know, from one of those places. Or just get it out there, you know, just get it out there however you, you And would the secret for you, Gary, be saying, identifying where you think your audience is for that? So with, if, it, if you're talking about Mavis in a 360 context, you go, okay, which music pub publication yeah, is talking like to these Rolling people? Stone would maybe want that. Yeah, okay. And, and I, I think it's, it's, it's new territory for, for those websites and, and media too, but I think people are open to it. And even if it just gets up getting shown as like a 360 video, you know, on the on the web, um, it, at least it's it's getting out there, and maybe you're making a little bit a little bit of money back on it, and you're moving on to the next project. Have you put it into festivals and tried that route? Um, well, we just 
talking to the vendor, so you know, the, I'm here with the trailer, talking with some people from festivals, showing them the trailers, we're still editing, editing yeah. it at home. I mean, that's a great, that's a great way, and obviously, mm. you know, people come to, to festivals like this, and, and you can make a lot of connections just by having it exhibited. Um, but it seems like there are just no, no shortage of ways to, you know, to, or, or, or possibilities. I mean, again, sometimes it's not, oh, here's an established place that always does, it already does you know, VR or 360 video, let's go to them. I mean, just try to think differently about it. Think about the organizations that would correspond with your subject matter. Go to Amnesty International, I mean, any, anyone, just you could go to uh, a nonprofit like that who believes in, in the, the, the subject matter of your, your, um, your piece, and they'd, I would, they'd be, you know, I, I think excited to try to get something out like that. So with that, like I said, everything is in flux, that opens up a lot of opportunities too um, for people who want to kind of experiment with, with releasing this kind of media, but who haven't had a, you know, haven't had a chance to yeah. and haven't been approached about it. People have their doors open right now, I think, is I think the so. thing I with think that so. state of flux. Can we turn the lights down a tiny bit so I can just see the yeah, audience? Can, can I, it's, it's interesting because it's not only VR, actually, the, the way we have been developing interactive projects since the beginning of the film was um, with the idea that you don't ask the audience to come where you are, you go where the audience is. So one of the things that we used to do is to say very, very like roughly that some have the money and some have the audience. And usually you find a deal where you bring the content to the ones who have the audience and they bring you the audience and the one who have the money benefit from the audience and the one who have the audience need content. And I think VR is following that scheme as well, but usually we used to have like broadcasters and fun investing in the project. But since the beginning, we had to uh, partner with uh, distribution platforms, embedding interactive projects so that you didn't have to have clicks basically mm -hmm. between the audience of Le Monde or the audience of uh, the BFI or, or sites like that, that people could actually see the content in the places they're used to go every day. I know the UN, you know, the um, Gabo Aurora just started this UN VR initiative, and the UN HRC is also like looking at using 360 video for kind of more refugee topics, so those are two, two places right off the bat. USF just had a call for uh, especially women to do this kind of work, so check out that. And uh, European Commission's funding as well projects, especially about migration and, uh, and that those type of uh, subjects. Okay, a, a question just here. Can you bring the mic down to the front? I would also say sometimes they want to, to pay for you to make it, so just say whatever you shot as your trailer, and then director. Yeah, at all of these forums, it seems like there's the inevitable audience question that you always, I'm not gonna ask that question. <laughs> still is this enormous space that we haven't fixed, which, you know, do we always want to have phones strapped to our face, or are we really imagining a world 
that immersive technology is gonna show us that is not this, right? And I don't think it is. I don't think that's the future. I think we want social immersive experiences and it's moving slowly in that direction with these phones on our faces. But once you do that, you are now taken out of this world mm -hmm. and it's very separate than a lot of the experiences that we choose to have. So I think that it is media, but it's technology. And so maybe it's not broad enough. That's why it's so connected to business. That's why the, the media, all these different media corporations would love to jump on it because it's the new thing, but it's also the new way that we're gonna interact with our interfaces. The first time we had a graphical interface for a computer instead of just punch cards changed the way that every human on the planet thought about having a computer. That was the moment when you know, children uh, could start interacting with this, this thing that was a giant calculator and they, it immediately started getting smaller and smaller because people saw the reason why they needed to interact with it. Having a new interface that inter interacts with the way we computationally represent ourselves in the world is enormous. It's groundbreaking. It's completely shifting and it has a lot to do with content because that can help us imagine that world, but it also really has to do with representing the human experience it, through computation. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm really gonna answer the question, but I think one thing that is happening is that people are consuming more and more <coughs> content with uh, slightly different ways that they are also producing it, so it changes a little bit radically the way you can address them, and they want to consume it basically whenever they want, wherever they want, whatever the device. So uh, I think, uh, I, I don't see the, the media as being the only one um, uh, as emitter, like giving out content. I think everybody has something to say, sometimes more or less uh, interesting. I think what media have is the great advantage of producing content for the past 50, 100 years. And the question is how are they gonna capitalize on that? And, and use the fact that, I don't know what amount of videos posted on, on YouTube and Facebook and almost every second, but like we're not waiting for media. They're not waiting for media. So how do you, so that's why I'm talking about public interest is, is audience interest if you want, but it's, the fear can be that documentary is a bit threatened by that because what's happening now is that people are consuming more and more shorter and shorter uh, videos. Uh, entertainment is really becoming bigger and bigger. So how do you continue uh, to make maybe longer pieces, maybe more in-depth, maybe not as um, sexy as some stuff that are being uh, on YouTube and making millions and millions of, of, of views like kittens or how do you how do you do YouTube without kittens? That's one of the questions you can ask. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's media broader than media. Any other questions from the audience? There's one just here and one at the back. Okay, so we'll go up to the back first and then come down to the front here. Sorry, I didn't see you because I have a light blinding my right eye. It's better now, though. All right. Uh, well, I'm a VR artist and a developer also. So the thing that, is, that I'm interested in is a residency. But, uh, yeah, but you, you, uh, the thing that you're offering is like a mama presidency. And uh, you know about the development, the issues with the development. So... Uh, I mean, it, it's good for innovation, but it's not good enough to get a polished output. So I think uh, 
better approach for to support uh, PR artists and developers to provide a more a long-term residencies uh, because one I think one month is just enough to wrap up the everything to be presentable but uh, you know it's kind of like research de design and development and all of these steps are really time-consuming so that's what I would like to hear more about sure yeah so at the innovation lab we did one month residencies and we also subsidized them with about eight thousand dollars to to live work for their experience for the New Rochelle project, um, we have three month to nine month residencies and that has a free apartment and a studio. So that would be for more long term projects. They also will have the infrastructure of the motion capture and VR facility where you have technicians there that can help them if they're interested in doing rigging, if they're interested in doing motion capture. Um, so that's more of like a, a longer term ecosystem. And with that, we're working with like Artist Residency Unlimited, iBeam and a couple of other um, sort of well known over 20 year um, you know, established institutions that are helping with those types of residencies so that we can bring these people in, into conversation. Working with institutions I think is very important. Um, you know, I could create this entire new thing and just say this is like Amelia's new residency program, but I think it's much more interesting to bring in the Guggenheim, bring in iBeam, to bring in um, industry and, and people who just have experience doing residencies, whether or not it has to do with VR or not, they understand how to support our And then down here, and then at the front. Thanks, here's a question for Gary, because um, um, I've just done a nonfiction VR project, and my background is uh, traditional filmmaking, so I find it extremely frustrating. Um, so I'd like- in Which part of it? In, in every part of it, and uh, <laughs> I think, and I think the, 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 the technology, uh, technology or um, thing is very much in the way of creative. It's very annoying, and um, yeah, it's and just yeah. I, I'd like to learn more about your cynic uh, nonfiction project, and also how you see the future of nonfiction. Well, I mean, yeah, again, this is one of those things where everyone is. A lot of people are kind of obsessed with what's coming. They're like, oh, well, when volumetric capture comes, then where it's all going to be, you know, <laughs> for nonfiction, that's going to be the thing. And and I I. I I like trying to kind of work within constraints of, of the current, of what we have, um, and not, not keep dreaming of like what it's going to be, and then try to use your approach and, and just how you're, how you're telling that, that story or the concept of even what it is, and it doesn't even belong, uh, you know, it shouldn't even be a VR piece. But, um, but uh, uh, that, that's where I think the, the creativity comes into play. Yes, all the capture solutions suck, and all the audio captures suck and um, you know even most of the playback sucks so take the all you know all those limitations and, and try to you know not embrace them but at least like work you know work within them um, and I think that <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, we're just trying all kinds of different approaches, and, and that's the, the thing. One thing to think about is that documentary filmmaking, not necessarily the best skill set to bring into VR. Um, I mean, I, I think that it requires a lot of other, requires the kind of the instincts of, uh, of live theater uh, or of architecture. I mean, you're telling a story within some sort of three-dimensional space, and, and that space actually becomes, you know, a character in the story. It, it, a lot of does a lot of the work. Um, 
So it, it is a different set of constraints, and I think it is frustrating sometimes. Because I mean, what I've done with scenic is bringing traditional documentary filmmakers into into the medium, and um, and there's nothing that substitutes for 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 trying and failing and 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 trying to figure out why you failed and being frustrated. So you're going through a very necessary step in becoming a great VR creator right now, um, because only when you wrap your head around the limitations of the medium do you start to think of the possibilities. So that's that your next project is going to be much more fulfilling because now you know or you have a better sense of what, what works and what doesn't work. And there's a lot of great research um, projects that, hap that are happening right now that you should take a look at, like Katie Newton's uh, work. She did the, the, there's a Medium post, the Storyteller's Guide to VR, which I think is really, really um, just basic kind of user experience, audience experience research that isn't being done in, for, for VR yet. She's doing a new study that we're um, sponsoring that's about um, magic and VR and the, the kind of correlation between magicians and VR creators because it's about focusing attention and telling a story in a, in a 3D space and magicians are, are really great at, at, at directing and misdirecting your, your attention or using that as a storytelling tool. So it's, you know, this is all, this is all evolving, but I mean, what I would, what I would say is just to keep, keep trying up with another idea, try to shoot it, try to make it, um, and, and you're going to learn, learn so much more each time. And we have at the front here. There, and then we'll go from here. Yeah. Uh, I'm also interested in residency. When I was asking myself, um, are you also uh, working with Oculus Reality as a storytelling device? Yes, um, we've done some projects with augmented reality. We're working a lot um, forefront of networked uh, VR. So there, that is motion capture. It's usually within a facility. Um, we've been also working, since it has like a black box theater and performance element as well, um, we've been working with uh, a company called Surround that does live uh, 360 broadcast over the web. Um, and it's a platform so anyone with you know a Theta or any kind of like very inexpensive camera can use their protocol to do live streaming of their um, live events uh, through this platform, and it's kind of like Periscope, where people can you know, chat and like it, and um, so we're, we're trying to work with different startups that will have uh, you know di different ways of creating the content, um, and I'm really interested in live performance, so I think that's an interesting area for me. And um, one question that I'm trying to ask everyone that is dealing with this, how many screens are actually out there? Is there a number that you can rely on? Because you kept saying that Content is very rare. People are looking for content. And on the other side of here, the broadcast is saying, well, it's so little audiences out there. And I can't really imagine that it's too little audiences because it's really easy to basically, if it's just video, you just need a phone. Right, exactly. I think that's it. If, you, if you're doing live streaming of 360 video, anyone with a phone can sort of you know, be watching that. I don't know how many people saw like Hamilton, the, the, the 360 shoot, and you could you know, move through. Some of my friends did this for them, and you, know, you could watch it on your phone. You could also watch it in the gear, and of course, if you, you know, had a vibe, I suppose you could watch it in vibes too. But, um, so I think that, that phone and 360 video, or of course it doesn't have to be video, it could be just anything, right? You can do it in the browser, you can do it on your phone. So, um, you know, 
having the device on your face is one way of interacting with this kind of immersive content, but it's not the only way. Um, Samsung here, what did they say, 100,000 units? They said something like four. The four million units of the Gear VR. Right. Um, right. One million monthly active users. But that, that's the corporate line, so. Right. I mean, it's and then just come out, Christmas hasn't even happened, right? So, you know, I have a feeling everyone's going to be getting the gear yeah. for Christmas. It's a very, um, it's, it's very expensive to make. Just are, are you talking about VR devices only, or are you talking no, about I, I mean, the, all, the audience in general? No, no, no. I, with, with that question, it was just VR devices, how, how we consume 360 virt virtual reality, basically. But I would also really like to know from you guys who are, I know that when it comes to TV and all the people who are sitting here and create films, they have watched vast amounts of audiovisual material in their lives. And the consumption that we do on VR, even those who are interested, I guess it's very, very limited, even with us enthusiasts. And I would like to know if it's different with you guys. I, I have this constant shame that I'm not using my GVR often enough. Well, I, I mean, I you guys probably all have different experience with this, but I know that when you do installations at, at galleries and museums and film festivals, if you if you put someone in the, the you know in the Vive and you have them watch a 360 video, it's like maybe two or three minutes is like the absolute max that you're going to expect them to watch it. Um, but then you put them in the tilt brush and then they're there for like 20 minutes. They won't take it off. And the first time I ever did the tilt brush, I did it until I like got seasick, you know, <laughs> from the experience. So it's like if you can make something interactive and have that kind of gratifying like world building experience with the viewer I think you it, it changes the amount of time you mm. can expect someone to willingly strap a phone to their face well, right? but isn't uh, it going to give the game industry like the key to the VR world what you're saying you know is tilt brush a game you know is is, is drawing with your friend a game is um, is would be being more in a play from the game industry than from the documentary industry. Well, it, that came from Google, right? So you know, so I mean, not I think documentary I th not documentary and not gaming. But I mean, it's like, like you're saying, it's it's making storytelling as um, engaging and immersive as something yeah. like a, a, a tilt brush. I think one of the things you know to answer your question, like you know, I definitely spent less time you know with a with a, a headset. Watching things than I do, say, watching a standard, um, you know, television. Part part of it is still, God, it, it, and it, as much as, um, you know, I, I still think the interface, the whole experience, is just still so rudimentary and, and bad. I mean, to get a v, uh, just a, even a Gear VR on to get to what you want, I mean, it should just be so, se and, and also be able to discover stuff. It should be so seamless. It should be what, um, you know. I mean, uh, I iPod have to, or something. Yeah. It's like you, you need that seamless universe where you put it on and within five seconds you are you're there. You're, you're watching. You're exploring. You're discovering. And and we're not we're not there yet. Uh, but, it, but it's historical as well. I mean, very people so. people were reading more books when TV arrived, and they and not watching as much video content. And video has become something so normal now. Um, and I don't know if it's interactivity or, or in general, VR and specifically AR, all the technological aspects of it, 
there are going to be much simpler. I mean, now touching the phone seems like something so easy, and it used to, it's it's not it, it was more complicated than that before. I've I've had the absolute privilege of being on the Doctor Lab jury, so I've seen twenty projects, all of which you can see outside in the last week. My head is still swimming. Um, but I think there's a very interesting, there's a great book by a guy called Frank Rose, which if you haven't read it yet, called The Art of Immersion, I highly recommend it for, for worth thinking about this space. It's actually a fairly old book that was kind of written pre-VR, but I think a lot of the lessons still stand. And he talks about um, us being at the same point <coughs> in time now as cinema was 100 years ago. So essentially going out there and looking at those, those different experiences is like going to a screening of a Melier film that you're seeing for the first time editing, you're seeing magic tricks being employed. And they're employed fairly clunkily in lots of ways. It's you flipping expectation, they're crossing lines and all of the stuff that cinema started to understand to do and learned. But you're in that learning process. There are only 20 films you can go and see right now because we're at that stage of, of the evolution in the process. Although it's so massively crashed in time because of the level of technological adaption and, and the way the rapidity with which things are changing because of how accessible digital technology is. And that, that's slightly stating the obvious, but I think it's worth us remembering. We, we live in such a place of privilege because we, particularly in these rooms, that we can go outside and play with all 20 things in the same space. But we, we kind of forget this is like toddler, we're not even a toddler, we're a, we're a crawling infant. Yeah, I mean, Vive, Rift, Gear, Daydream, you know, all this, this is version one of all, all of these things. Expensive, no? <laughs> Nobody can. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's like not even out or Magic Leap or all this kind of stuff that we're talking about. It's like nothing. <laughs> it's, like, I love this it's like we've done nothing so far. But there, and I think, you know, the hype that we're constantly bombarded with is because of the kind of transformative potential of, of, the, the, of the media. So, um, yeah, God, it's so, it's, it's, you know, get tired of going to conferences and about it's oh it's early days it's early days but it, it really is and nothing nothing is defined it, which is why I think we need more voices and more creators in this to kind of help define it while um, it still is kind of shapeless and, and can go in any direction the media doesn't have to be just you know um, big Hollywood you know movie spin-off VR pieces or you know or board games um, there can be a lot of And also get our friends, like how many of you, this happens to me, like I've got a lot of friends that are creators or, you know, artists or, you know, musicians, and I, I'm like, oh, have you tried VR? Most of my friends, I'd say 90% of my friends have not even put a headset on, any headset on. Um, and, and I think, well, okay, does that have to be our job too? Like not only are we creating the stuff, but we have to actually go, you know, go out and get the audience, but it kind of does. I just started having happy hours at my office where I just invite all my friends over who haven't experienced <laughs> VR. We just have drinks and then I show them a bunch of, you know, a bunch of stuff. But, you know, if, if 100, <laughs> if 10,000 creators did that, we'd, we'd instantly enlarge the audience for VR by like 10 times. Okay, so that's a to-do for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, um, I, uh, I'm sorry, I just forget what I wanted to <laughs> say. Amelia, Amelia was gonna say something, I think. 
Well, I want to say, just to piggyback on that, one of my great friends is here who I met at the R Salon um, in New York, which is something that I started for underrepresented people in tech to, to become creators in VR. And I think some of the exciting stories are people who came who said, I just wanted to see what VR is. And then you know, after maybe the third session, they're like, this is the piece that I created. And then they're speaking about it. And so I think, you know, make your own communities. We were able to get a lot of sponsorship from Google and from um, you know, the Met and other places to be able to host these salons. And so I think it's, it's fairly, it's because it's something that's interesting to people. If, if you need a community of people to give you feedback or if you're, Never, you know, developed a, you know, an app in your life. You know, just just start a group of friends. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I remember what I wanted to say because when we when we prepared uh, the session, the first thing that we talked about was that it's the tenth anniversary of Dogtown. So it's like it's been ten years. So now, are we an industry? Basically, that was the first question. And I wanted to go back to the history of uh, old media's that we tend to forget and say, I think this is a very interesting time that because we're, we're gonna, the way we put it uh, in pattern with, with the producer's friend of interactive is says it's season two. So it's not industry yet, it's not the cinema as we know it now, but it's not anymore uh, as experimental, as not knowing it. Basically we've been spending 10 years with people who thought maybe the internet is going to disappear so now that we know that it's going to stay, it's what do we do with that and all the other babies that it created because we're talking about VR, but you have Snapchat, you have Facebook, you have, like how does the interactive content is uh, going to be distributed online? Is the Hopefully Apple the model. Things, huh? the, the Internet of Things. Definitely. What's your going to tell you? Yeah, and algorithm. How, how are our tastes are going to be influenced by algorithm? Because reaching an audience is also like fighting against Google and Facebook <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. How does gear, uh, like the, the, the different brands, uh, like, like the PlayStation Store and all of that are going to position themselves as Android or Apple, like controlling the content? or not, like all of that is, is still, is going to, like it's season two, it's, it's, it's not yet there. It's <laughs> a lovely way of thinking of it. Do we have a last one or two questions? Yeah, just here. And then I'm gonna ask the panel to kind of sum up, give us a, a takeaway that the audience can go and cogitate and be inspired by, so prepare yourselves. Yeah, hi, uh, my, my question is to Margot. You said you are now going into gaming. Um, what's your approach to it? Narration. Narration. Uh, nar yeah, narrative, like storytelling. The, the idea is to say, um, we, we have been struggling, uh, it's been a long time since we wanted to do fiction. We have been trying to, to work on fiction. And at some point you realize that fic interactive fiction is just video game. You can put it the way you want, uh, whether it's, it's real life images or whatever, it's, and you clearly don't have the same amount of money that, that video games uh, industry has, so you have to think it a little bit differently. And one of the things that we have been, uh, we're playing a lot, I, I, I bought a PS4, I, I stopped playing before and, and now I, I'm, I'm back to it, uh, and most of our, the people I work with are really gamers and really more and more into independent gaming very small games that are not very long. It doesn't have to be like 20 hours, it can be half an hour, one hour, but 
like really giving you an experience like you would watch a beautiful movie or a beautiful short, short um, and, and, but giving you another experience because it's, uh, so the idea is to, we're approaching it as a smaller budget, uh, independent approach, beautiful storytelling, uh, graphic designs, simple graphic designs, and, uh, and using the specificities of the devices that we want to put it on. But your stories are based on reality, or no? It's fiction. Pure fiction. Well, it's it's no, it's based on mythology. So it depends if you think it's documentaries. No. But but uh, okay. Uh, any last questions before I ask the the panel to inspire you? Um, I mean, I have written about seven pages of notes from that myself, and I had the opportunity to talk to the team before. My, my, my wrap-up would be completely linked to, to what I just answered. I think um, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in uh, right now and is how do you survive as independent? I think it's not really interactive documentary fiction or whatever. It's, it's um, how do you, 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 you defend the fact that independence is really important? How do you find an audience to show that independent productions, wherever they are, whatever they are about, are reaching an audience because people want more and more non-fiction based, more and more authentic pieces. I think one of the effects of the internet is that you cannot fool people as much as you could before. They know how to create a video, they know how to shoot it, they know how to edit it, they know how to publish it online. And so it's creating a very interesting relationship with the audience. Um, of you have to be honest, basically, whatever you do. And, and I think it's a nice challenge, which is very good for independent makers. Um, but in a time where Google and Amazon and Facebook and Netflix are ruling a little bit this world, it's how do you manage to continue paying the rent and paying your wages um, around, whether it's in video game or, or filmmaking or VR making. Independence. Gary? Um, my advice uh, about uh, the business of interactive would be to um, don't think about the business of interactive. Um, think about your project. Think about the concept of, of your project. Don't worry about what capture technology you're going to use, what you're, how you're going to distribute it, how you're going to get money for it, how you're going to, who the audience is for it. Just worry about the idea. Spend your time obsessing about the idea. Because a strong concept of your project gets you money, gets you technology, gets you audience. It's not about everything else that you do after coming up with the idea. It's the idea itself. So obsess over that. That's my, that's my own advice. Wonderful. Amelia? Well, I'm, I'm very interested, as you know, in, in AI and VR. And I think the, the intersection between the two is that artificial intelligence is about modeling the human experience in, in a computational language, and VR is about experiencing a model of human experience, right? And so if we are, in fact, taking the human experience and bringing it into VR and, and using AI in order to be that interface, it's very important that we have diverse people at every stage um, of the development of those projects. So for those of you who are programmers or, or like me are building infrastructure, I just I urge you to make sure that you have a diversity of background, of ethnicity, of nationality, of gender, 
uh, you know, people who, who come from different backgrounds, who are from independent music, or who are um, sculptors, who are policymakers. I, I, I just think that it's very important to make sure if we're going to model this human experience, that we model it as closely to the diverse world that we live in. Wonderful, a, a great message. So. Hopefully that's incredibly inspiring. The, the things for me that I feel like we've, we've taken away to, in not answering the central question perhaps, um, but in a useful way, is that we're, what we're talking about is we're all here because we want to be, we are creating, we are trying to tell stories. And I think that in what a business analyst would call disintermediation, that, you're, that independence of trying to, to find new business models where there are some structures in place that may not be helpful to that creation, we have, to tra we have to kind of grapple with questions of technology, of media, of consumption, and of audience. And while they might be a different set of constraints and challenges, we're always used to working with constraints and challenges as, as makers and creators and commissioners and distributors and, and, and as audience. Um, the sense that it's a very more and more multidisciplinary uh, world, that it requires diversity, but it requires not thinking about ourselves as, as documentary or as technology or as fiction or as games. Uh, that we need a broader range of partners than ever before. And I really love the idea of working with the now, that, that sense of obsess on your idea, work with where we are now, don't think about what's coming next or where, where we're going because you have to, at some point, put a, a pin in the map. Um, and that sense of defining your own future, don't wait for permission, say what it is you want to make. That independence means creating models that work for you. Uh, it might mean that it's very, very hard, bespoke work to start with, but it feels like that there are formats emerging from that and opportunities emerging for that across those boundaries to, to bring, uh, that hopefully next year we get to sit here and go, yeah, well, this is one interesting thing, and here's the extra five more complications that have come in the meantime. Um, I'd love you to join me in thanking a fantastic panel that I've learned a lot from. I hope you have too. <laughs>